0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Shape Notes podcast, where we bring you inspiring conversations with industry leaders and innovators. I'm your host, Jeroboo Sandawan, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Jude, co founder of Git Equity, the largest digital asset exchange in Africa. Jude is not only a visionary entrepreneur, but also a venture partner at WeFund, the largest crowdfunding platform in the world. In the real cap, a $30 million-plus fund specializing in B2B infrastructure across evolving economies. His expertise and experience in the world of finance and technology make him a true trailblazer in the African tech ecosystem. In our conversation, we'll delve into the fascinating world of Get Equity, exploring how they're revolutionizing the digital asset exchange landscape in Africa. We'll also discuss the challenges and opportunities of African tech, drawing from Jude's unique perspective and insights. But it wasn't just business talk, we also had the chance to dive into Jude's upbringing and how it shaped his uh, entrepreneurial journey. From his early experiences to his passion for investment in Africa, Jude shared special and personal anecdotes and valuable lessons that will inspire aspiring entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts. So whether you're interested in the world of digital assets, African tech, or simply Seeking inspiration from a remarkable entrepreneur in this episode is a must-listen. Get ready to be inspired as we explore the world of Kere Kuti, African tech, and the incredible journey of Jude. Let's dive deep in. Hi Jude, uh, welcome to the Shape Nose podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome man. Um, so I'm going to start off with something that uh, um, I think is a is a difficult question especially for you, considering your uh, background when it comes to this. So, um, Jimmy Neutron versus Dexter. Which boy genius character do you like better? And can you also describe to us how this character has influenced you uh, growing up?
1: Okay, for me, this answer is actually easier. It's Dexter. Um, I grew up wanting to be like Dexter. Dexter was an all-around scientist, neutron to me, seemed more of an engineer. I wasn't interested in hardware. I've never really been interested in building hardware. But Dexter, Dexter was a scientist-scientist. He mixes stuff and uses those mixes to create new things. That actually was what I wanted to be. I guess from when I was five till I was maybe 10. In fact, till I was maybe 12. If you ask what I wanted to be, I'll just say scientist. I didn't particularly have... An idea of what science I wanted to do but I just wanted to be a scientist and a large part of that was driven by initially Dexter then later Zeta Project.
0: Awesome isn't it interesting how you know um, some of these mediums or some of these uh, shows actually influence us especially as kids Um, but Mm -hmm. I I often find that there's you know there's a, a lack of representation when it comes to these types of things uh, they don't necessarily relate to us as Africans. I was actually we actually did an article on our, our site um, where we were talking about this uh, Zimbabwean animator who who took part in this project with they were uh, creating a, an animation for um, for Disney, which I think was was quite amazing to for us to have you know people that, that look like us characters that are relatable, but definitely. Um, so what 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 changed your initial you know, idea of wanting to be a scientist. Did you just grow out of it, or, or maybe there was something else that kind of influenced that 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 shift or that pivot?
1: I mean, I wouldn't say I grew out of it. I'd say it more of evolved. So, like I said before, I started out with Dexter's lab, and then I wanted to be a generic scientist. And then from De- from Dexter's lab, um, Zeta Project made me want to become, an, a robotic scientist. And, you know, over time I got into secondary school, I read Dan Brown's book. um, I think it was called Digital Fortress. And that opened my eyes into the world of cybersecurity. And then I wanted to become a hacker. All of that took me into now wanting to be in, you know, wanting to study computer science. And the crazy thing is I've done everything there is that I know of in you know computer science or in whatever industries or new age industries except cybersecurity. Um, but I got into computer science wanting to be a hacker, and the first day I wrote my first program um, in college, I was I was hooked I was hooked into programming, and I never looked back since then.
0: Awesome, man. So, um, I'm interested, maybe, in how this sort of hacker mindset, because I, I know hacking is also, it's not just about, you know, writing code. There's also a kind of a process to it. How, how does, mm-hmm. how did that kind of thinking extend to what you're doing now in terms of the projects that you're doing? Do you find yourself more and more, uh, maybe, resorting to the, that kind of hacker mindset when you know, be it managing your team or um, whatever work that you're currently involved in.
1: Um, so the hacker mindset is one that I would say I didn't get to achieve as much. And reason for this being that um from when I stumbled on writing my first program, that was it, right? I became yeah. a software engineer. And then from being a software engineer, I mean, there's I think it's also based on the people that I have worked with while building software um how i was or how i have been evolved on how to think about building software i became more of a product person i'm more fascinated about how the product should look like and how the product should scale how the product should evolve to me right now software is software is basically a tool it's pretty much a tool to solve a problem so i like to call myself a product guy a product person that can write code. That's literally how I describe myself. And in this, so with this particular instance, will I say I don't look at things from a hacker mindset? I would say I look at things more from a product mindset. Um maybe if I was talking with back-end engineers and there's a certain way, in fact, even the way backend is written has to be in a way where it's scalable, other people can understand. I, I like to think that there is a certain user experience flow for back-end engineers which I try to follow as a principle um but I would say yeah for me it's more it's been more of a product mindset now as opposed to a um as opposed to a hacker mindset
0: awesome can you maybe take us back a little bit um to when you first wrote that program I don't know if it was. Was, I remember um, everything about it. So it wasn't necessarily can you a Hello World. On, on what that experience was like.
1: Um. So the first yeah. program I ever wrote actually wasn't a Hello World. Uh, I mean, I guess I wrote a Hello World, but that wasn't that wasn't what drove me. The first program I remember writing was a um, an Almighty Formula Calculator using Visual Basic. So, I was able to visual basic is uh, it basically has a drag and drop ID, um, a drag and drop type of module uh, where you can pick buttons, all of this, just like Java. And then, with all of those, then you're able to program what each button does, look and feel, all of that. And when you do that, you're able to now compile that into an actual program that runs, that has a life of its own in your PC. That end to end process of being able to yeah. do that. I'd written something in Visual Basic, I'd compiled it, I'd built it. It was now a standalone app that I could pick out anytime and calculate anything in Almighty Formula. I was mind-blown. I was like, what are the entry cases? What are the possibilities of this? And it got me hooked for the longest. Um from that, I mean The beauty about my computer science program in in uni was, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of hands on involved. We're always giving projects every semester. I think every semester we had an average of, let's say, three programming projects, and so these were then sometimes they were group projects, sometimes they were singular projects, but these were things when I've I'd always been a hands on person, so my hands on. Towards these type of projects was very, you know, I'd lead, the, I'd lead the group, or I'll just do it by myself, and then have other people just present with me. But what I didn't realize was at that time how fascinated I was with it. Um, I just felt like yes, I enjoyed it, yeah. but later on, after the introspection, I realized that I enjoyed the idea of being able to bring about something from nothing and then getting that thing into the hands of people who enjoy using it that was a combination of my will i call it as my early life it was a combination of my early life as a software engineer.
0: awesome you you also touched a bit on your fascination with um you know the user experience and now you were speaking to, you know, the the feeling that you got from someone using your product. So it wasn't just building the product. Um, can you also take us to that moment when you actually saw that something that you had worked on uh, was being used by uh, a, an individual or a group of people?
1: So the first time was in uni. it was in college when I was, I think the first major thing that we built, the first major project was to be a um, I think what they had told us at that time was a digital um, was a digital library and what I ended up creating was I created that digital library also added like a timer, an alarm, all of those you know extra niceties um, unfortunately I think I submitted the project late so I didn't get the full marks I should have but I got other people, you know, other people in my class were fascinated with what I had built. Um, They were so fascinated with what I had built. it, it, It gave this sort of, what's the word I'll call it now? It gave this sort of pleasure that came from people seeing things, people seeing this, people being fascinated, all of that. It was interesting. Then the next project was, um, I think, was for a hospital service. We're creating a, um, a scheduler for hospital So Now this had to be an application on two sides. You had for the doctors, you had for the patients, you had for the registrar. That is, that was probably one of the biggest projects I had worked on. And- in the, um, the very early stage and I was, it was amazing. Like being able to conceptualize how this would work, being able to conceptualize how my database should be, all of that. I felt I'm trying to look for the word, but it was something that I enjoyed while I was doing. Like it didn't seem like homework. And from there, I started giving myself projects. So I started doing this thing where if we're going to learn a new language in a semester, I would go learn it first during the holidays and build projects with it. So over time, I ended up building a media player. I ended up building um, literally anything I could think of, anything I could get my hands on. I would build those using tutorials from YouTube, all of that. I think my final thing was when we did a project on um, a fleet event system, just being able to track that sheet based on coordinates, all of that. um, That was also perfect for me. That was amazing. And then everything changed when we got to, I think, either my third or fourth year, and we're doing web design. The thing with um, building mobile apps is the fact that you you have to go through the process of building. um, If you want to show it to someone, they need to first install the application on their PC. They had to be using a certain type of PC because it couldn't work on the Mac, etc. But web took things a whole different way. All I had to do was host that website and send it to anyone, and they could use it. And funnily, at that time, um, when I had learned web design, I started getting let me call them gigs, right, to build maybe an e-commerce website for yeah. someone or something else for another person, et cetera. That changed everything for me. Now I was being paid. I mean, first of all, I enjoyed what I was doing. I was building because I enjoyed what I was doing. Then yeah. I was now getting paid to do what I enjoyed doing that I could do for free. That changed the dynamic as well. It took me to like another level and another extra level. And I mean, since then, I don't think I've ever looked back. It's I've learned almost everything there was to learn. I've mm. learned mobile design, web design. Um, back then, it was it was web basically. It was there wasn't front end, back end, or DevOps. It was just basically web. And then when he when he started to separate, yeah, I did the whole view, view JS one, um, Node.js, Python, um, PHP, all of that. And it's been amazing since then, to be very honest.
0: Awesome, that that was actually going to be my second question, but you answered that, because I was also interested in, you know, I suppose, like you said, you, you obviously enjoyed building, but, you know, when you realize that you can actually be paid for something that you love doing, it kind of changes the dynamic. Plus, like you said, it it you know you 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 continuously keep learning because for you initially the motivation wasn't, uh you know to get paid but it was actually the other way around. Um, so can you you know you grew up in uh, Yeba Lagos, um, and it is known as this vibrant you know multicultural community, uh, and now it has gained a, a reputation as a as a hub for you know both education and technology. Um, oh. can you tell us about what? what it was like growing up in in Yaba Lagos.
1: Um, so I grew up as um, a child of you know, middle-class Nigerians. Uh, my parents are civil servants. They could afford the small luxuries, like, for example, having a PC when I was five, um, you know, also having access to the internet at some point. And then I went to the University of Lagos, which um, I would say... One of his biggest selling positions or one of his biggest selling um, selling points was the fact that it was located right in the heart of Lagos. And then um, I think fast forward into maybe 2013, 2014, we started to have a lot more um, diasporans come back home and you know, try to start up tech projects um, that later ended up becoming startups. Um, we also have like we also had like government funding at that time for tech hubs, and a lot of these tech hubs were located in Yaba, literally 15 minutes away from school. And even though yeah. you know a lot of a lot of my friends um, were people who would go to these tech hubs, yeah. you know, at that time I never visited. I was I was mostly a Class to hostel type of person, but all of my friends were, a lot of my friends were would go to tech hubs. They wanted to get involved in, you know, tech communities and all of that. I think at some point in time, I also was a Microsoft student partner, which meant that I also had to do a, a bit of community things much later on, um, while still in uni. All of this sort of opened my eyes to the world of. Um, the tech life or the tech community outside of school. Now, granted, at this point, I still didn't understand how much people could make from tech. I mean, we knew you could make money. We knew you could make more than the average banker. But at that time, oil and gas was where it was at. So at the end of the day, I still told myself that I was going to you know, be an IT person, an oil and gas company, et cetera. So a lot of these tech startup type of life was... You know, I enjoyed it because it was a fun thing to do. And then fast forward into my fourth year, I did my internship at an oil and gas company and I told myself, you know this is definitely not what I want to do um yeah. Not so, for like not to any of no those you companies, but I just felt like they were they were a bit rigid uh, you know it was a bit too structured Etc. I wanted to be in a space where I would just be, um, what's the word called, where I would just be paid to build stuff. And that was what I found myself doing.
0: What was happening in Nigeria at the time that, um, what was peculiar about that, um, what was peculiar about that enabled, you know, government to be involved in funding startups and uh, in creating that sort of vibrant uh, tech, tech ecosystem?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, 20... I, I would say from 2014 was the time when there was this whole startup boom. And granted, even before then, we had, you know, a lot of people were knew about YC. You know, we were fascinated about tech startups in the US. Um, YC summer school from like 2012, et cetera. It was amazing but what we didn't expect was for it to come into the country at that time so when it did it was was spectacular it's it exploded with a bang and reason being that a lot of these companies a lot of these startups couldn't necessarily afford to hire um or I call it now they couldn't necessarily afford to hire um startups from engineers who had like graduated or had a lot of experience. So what they did was to start to hire people who were good at what they were doing, but were still in the university. So we had a lot of my classmates and myself who were already working for, um, what's the word for tech startups from maybe their fourth year.
0: Yeah.
1: And so, literally down to it's it's one of the reasons why I say I'm very well connected in tech industry because a lot of people who have gone on to make names for themselves, you know, in the tech community, et cetera, where people who I was either classmates with or I went to uni with, like we all saw ourselves on a day-to-day when, you know, people met up at events, et cetera. And so right now, like looking back, it's the fact that you can really trace, the fact that we can basically trace everyone's, um, should I say everyone's evolution, or where everybody started? We can literally trace it down to the CC hubs and the idea hubs of about 2014, 2013, 2014.
0: So, can you also talk? You know, you know, you spoke about your involvement with you know tech startups um, uh-huh. um, at that period. Can can you now talk about how it was like? You know, transitioning from being an engineer uh, into the founder that you are now, uh, given how, you know, different that those roles can be, you know, because now as a founder, you're now selling, you know, creating pitch decks and all of that. Oh my God. They're, uh, very, so different. Very... <laughs> they're very different.
1: They're very Yeah.
0: So it's a very distinct, um, it's a very distinct, you know, world. And, and also, you know, the interesting thing is when, um, I, but Maybe an extension to that question is: I, I, Do you consider yourself a, a, a better founder because you have that engineering uh, background? Because oftentimes, I, uh, you know, you go to a meeting and uh, you know, like a founder says, "Well, you know, this particular feature will take two hours to to edit," and then they go back to their team and the engineering team is like, "No, this will take like two years or, or a year or whatever." I'm just exaggerating, but yeah, the point yeah. is. Are you? Does that make you a better founder? So first, take us through that transition from being an engineer to um to a founder, and then tell us about how you think uh, your engineering background has helped you thrive as a founder.
1: So I think for me, it's uh, my engineering background has helped me be be an amazing or build amazing product, um, build an amazing product like like Get Equity. And sometimes I tell myself that um, maybe I went ahead to build something that is quite niche. Um, It's a pretty challenge for me. But in terms of being a better founder, I honestly wouldn't be able to say. I think everybody tends to focus on what their strengths are and upskill on where their weaknesses are. Now, for me, I've tried to appeal in other parts. There's some founders who are good at fundraising. There's some some founders who are good at the tech. There's some founders who are good at marketing. I think basically what makes a founding team, it's one of the reasons why I am more biased towards a founding team, is the fact that they have to complement each other to make an amazing team. And it's not just um, it's not just um, what's the word called, being able to have you product sense or being able to have marketing sense. It's the fact that you have to have all of that, all of them. You have to have all of them. They have to all be there. Uh, It's you could have a really good product, but if you're not able to sell the product, then what's the point? Or you could be very good doesn't work then all that has to happen is someone else creating a better product and going off your previous sales to be able to say oh we're just like these people but better
0: yeah yeah that's definitely true um and you know maybe to linger on that uh team aspect a bit you know whenever the question of what makes a successful startup team is is asked you know, one common answer is that, uh, you know, one needs to have prior startup experience, product knowledge, industry skills, and all these other things. Um, but there was a group of uh, researchers in the Netherlands, I believe it was, that had did a research uh, on about 95 new startup teams. And what they discovered is that you need more than those sort of initial ingredients. You also need um, a team that has a shared vision and and. and uh, and passion. So, I, I'm interested in your um, approach to leadership and team building. How how do you personally build a coercive and uh, effective team?
1: Um, to be honest, I would say it's a large part of this is building with people that you are that you share similar values with and you're friendly with. Now. I don't necessarily or I wouldn't necessarily say that because I kind of think um, an, a product team or an engineering team or a fouling team is sort of like a mini marriage. You're going to be joined at the hip for quite a long time. And so yeah. you need to be really close friends, right? And you need to complement each other. The complementing part, it, people say it's pretty much like a marriage. And I think I... I tend to agree at many points, right? It's it's just exactly how you would choose a partner for marriage. It has to be someone that you have shared values with. It has to be someone that you feel you can get work done with. You feel that you'd be able to, um, what's the word called? You'd be with each other and be able to last with each other for a while. Um, obviously, I mean, there are times when you would make mistakes. Um, mistakes are bound to be made. It happens. Um but also being able to recover from those mistakes as well is it, it it's why it's a big deal.
0: Exactly. I think I think it's Peter Tio and you know at uh, Founders Fund that said um one of the questions that they ask their founders is like the sort of the Genesis story is um you know, how did you guys meet? And he says the wrong answer would be, you know, we met at a tech event and then we decided to build a company. But the right answer would be something uh, along the lines of what you've spoken about, that, you know, maybe you went to the same high school, but ultimately you, you're friends with each other, you know each other, right. and you you are pursuing the same vision. So I definitely agree with that um, with that assessment. Yeah. Um, I think now we can jump into, you know, get equity and what you're building there. Can you provide us an overview of what uh, get equity is and how you are making investment in private companies more accessible across uh, emerging markets?
1: Okay, so first off, I would say get equity is a marketplace for private companies, right? Um, And we do that in two ways. In the first instance, we provide we provide a market for investors who are looking to invest in startups in general. That that's a more B2C to, B to side. Investors who are looking to invest in startups, startups who are looking to raise funds from investors. And then we have what I'd also refer to as our B2B model, which is providing tailored marketplaces for institutions. Now institutions already have their startups. They also in many times already have their investors. But what they need is a more streamlined solution to be able to manage that investment process. Streamlined, um that's one. And then the second part would be um, they also need maybe some of the legal solutions as well. And so what we, as Get Equity do is provide those those combinations of solutions for um, institutions. and these institutions could be investment clubs, venture funds, um, they could also be asset managers who are looking at multiple asset classes as well. And so this works for us in many, um, I'd say that in total is how um Get Equity has been or GetEquity has provided um, for this solution.
0: Awesome. So, um, maybe can you also tell us about the motivation behind starting get Equity? What, what sort of problems were you seeing, you know, uh, around, and that kind of motivated you to to start this venture?
1: So, I've worked in startups almost all my life. Um, I've worked in startups from the very beginning to a couple of these startups now worth you know. Tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. The one thing that has always been constant in all of this is fundraising. Startups needing access to funds has always been the biggest uh, the biggest problems or one of the biggest problems. And I also came from what I would refer to as the crypto community. That, um, that community in itself, the crypto community is something that has always been community funded. Um, long before venture capital came, yeah. and there were certain factors to this um, community funding coming into play. One of that was the fact that there was liquidity. The second aspect is the fact that there was also there was liquidity, there was community funded, and there was avenues for exits. All of these added together is what has been able to get us into or is what has been able to get the crypto community into where it is. And so all we decided to do at Get Equity was taking an already established concept and try to mirror that concept around the African markets in general, the African venture markets in general. And so when we did that, uh, one major thing that we started to see was use cases where or we started to see Use cases where this tailored into venture capital in general. And so from there, we also noticed the need for institutions. Now, this the initial solution catered for um, retail investors and early stage companies. But then later stage companies don't have the same problems early stage companies do. Later stage companies yeah. are not looking for in a multitude of retail investors what they're looking for is a lot more but in some instances they might say that oh they won't be able to convert some of their customers to potential investors so they need syndication but now private syndication and then for institution institutions also need syndications across multiple levels they want to be able to handle some type of syndication they want to also be able to handle legalities of setting up a fund um setting up a fund um also structuring that fund etc and so that was what all of these solutions tied into what is now or what get equity has now evolved into
0: so maybe can you also speak about the specifics in terms of what how get equity is different from other investment uh, platforms specifically when it comes to features and uh, benefits for 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 your
1: investors um so when you say um, benefits okay I think one of the first things I I need to mention is this particular use case um in terms of benefits for all our members one of the biggest things that brings in as a benefit is uh, a community now yeah. a community of angel investors I particularly have seen situations where from a community of angel investors, it has gotten a lot of companies access to um one people who are early users of those products. Yeah. And then secondly, it was able to secondly, it's also these companies in themselves, within themselves, also being able to have synergies. Now we talked about us as at GetEqu being you know, product people per se. What this has led to is Now, we not only just structure for get equity products, but we're able to look at, for companies that have been listed, we're able to look at possible synergies across our entire portfolio, link these companies together and, you know, get them to perform magic. In some instances, also help with hiring, um, also help with, you know, contracting, other value-added services that they might need.
0: Can you also speak about, like, the due diligence side of things how do you actually you know select and vet the companies that uh, that you enlist on the platform
1: okay so um first off we have an application process um, just like anyone else and as part of our application process uh we basically collect i mean a large trove of data on the com on the companies um majorly this major application process is to filter out quite a bit um part of our requirements is the company has already launched they've already generated revenue doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be um a large revenue could be the smallest amount of revenue but they must have generated revenue and then the next step after that is to make sure um then we have like a due diligence call with them one of the things that we're doing right now with trying to restructure that with Diligence Africa, their third-party due diligence partner, legal partner, and all of that. Um, I guess this is the first place I've been mentioning it in public. But we're also working with with Diligence Africa to be able to structure out um, and scale out that particular process. So once this is done, um, we have what I would call a... Um, I think I'll call it an investor score, an investor matrix. And what this is, is we're able to generate an investor score based off certain patterns. Now those patterns could be based off certain factors. These factors could be the team. So there's a score in each of these different segments. The team, that's domain expertise of the team, team cohesiveness, um, there's other things like the industry, the amount of exits the industry has had, the average potential, um, what they call it, the growth of that industry, et cetera. Yeah. And then from there, we are able to generate a, an investor score. Right now, our investor score is give or take over 10. Um, once the company crosses, I think our benchmark is seven. So you're 70%. Once a company crosses that then they go into ICE. And ICE is just pretty much people with um investment experience who take a look at the company and decide if that company should go if that company should be listed or not if that company's um what's the word approved for listing then um uh, legal steps in into the next step which is basically signing of legal documents and the company goes live.
0: awesome awesome that's awesome man so uh, it sounds like you, you guys collect like a, a treasure trove of data. And um are there any specific trends that you've seen so far and maybe in around startups and investing and also maybe why and that maybe you can mention one or two um success stories that you have, um that you can that you're able to share with. Them.
1: Okay. So I mean well, one of the things that we had noticed was um GetEquity as a platform being used as an investment, um, being used as a tool basically, for venture scouts. And so what that led to us was being able to um, raise with a couple of um, venture firms as um, go, go like deal flow partners. But what we had seen at that time was a company raised a round on get equity, and they immediately um, reached out to buy, you know, quite a couple of VCs. So a company raising maybe a 10K, 20K round. Ideally, maybe they wanted to raise a $200,000 round. They reach out to buy a number of VCs, and in less than a month, they close out their 200K round. So basically, we had gotten to a point where visibility from Get Equity was seen as um, good, or we were seen as uh, um, a good due diligence platform where you would find really amazing early stage deals. And so that got us to just literally partner with these VC firms to get that over, to get that to the next level. Um, on some other angles, I think one of the things that we've also seen is um, investment thesis of or the patterns of investment from you know retail investors. I think it borders more towards a psychological um, place. Than from a more financial place. I mean, if people are going to put maybe $500 into a business, for them it's more of, oh, I like this business. I like what they're trying to do. I'm going to invest $500, $500 into them. Or oh, I like this business. I like what they're trying to do. I like this founder. I'm trying to put money in more female founders, et cetera, and mm-hmm. things like that.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So is um, get equity, uh, maybe this is something that people would be interested in knowing. Is it just for Nigerian startups, or um, is it for any African startup?
1: Well, right now it's for any African startup. Um, We have quite a bit of East African startups as well. Trying to get my first, trying to get our first South African. Um, We'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed.
0: Awesome, that's awesome. Um, It seems to me that you know you're building an amazing, uh, an amazing tool and an amazing platform. Um, but, you know, as a founder, building can also take a toll on you. I'm interested in maybe some of the challenges that you have faced while uh, building get equity, and how you're able to sail through that.
1: I mean, one of the biggest right now is the current venture downturn. Um, okay. Right now, you're not only worried about just yourself. You're also worried about startups in your portfolio. You're also worried about the potential investors that you have um, that you have deals with um, them running out of funds, et cetera. So for us, it's when a it crisscross of the equities or the venture markets in itself, when a it crisscross of that, and what that means is as the venture market is down, we also need to look at um, situations or look at the silver lining in those and try to build products too. Or try to evolve our product to tailor to those um silver linings. And uh, then there's also regulation. I mean, regulation remains by far the biggest headaches. It's yeah. the thing with um African regulators is you'd have to always engage. engaged. That engagement is something that never stops. Um yeah. right now we're still at it. Um Hopefully, we get to the point where we can call ourselves pioneers of, um, you know, the venture equity crowdfunding landscape or digital asset landscape in Africa.
0: Definitely looking forward to that. Um, you know, is there any advice? we? I think we spoke about building a team and, you know, uh, issues around recruitment earlier on. Is there any advice that you'd have um, for startups that, you know, early age founders that um, in terms of attracting talent that don't necessarily have the resources that some, some some big companies have, but still want to attract um, the best talent. I'm sure you also mentioned, or maybe I, um, I bumped uh, on this through when I was doing research um, for this interview, you also were mentioning how at times you had to work for certain startups because you really believed in them. Um also? despite your your level of talent. So maybe our uh, what advice by way of advice, what would you advise early startup founders to do in terms of attracting the best uh talent, despite having, you know, not having much to offer in terms of kind um, of a paycheck?
1: Um so what I tell a lot of founders is you're a salesperson, right? The very first thing is the very first thing is you're selling your startup to your employees, you're selling your startup to your co-founders. You're selling your startup to investors, the very first people that you sell this idea to is your employees right after your co-founders. Right? And so I've seen situations where, especially in this downturn, employees have taken pay cuts because they want the company to move forward. They've taken um some employees have gone without pay for quite for a bit because of that. I think personally, from, uh, in my own opinion, focusing on selling your idea or selling the idea to your employees and not just selling your idea, but making them a part of this. And that's why I believe in, I believe completely in um, things like stock options, et cetera. It's, it's something I would always have a lot of, um, what they call it for, have a lot of, Um, belief in because it makes your employees feel like the only bit of the company and now we feel like an owner you would not want something you own to die basically exactly yeah and so that part of the inclusion matters inclusion helps a lot
0: yeah definitely um yeah, always. I think I think it's very important for for people to realize that. Yeah, and I think that also, like you're saying, if someone knows that they they're not only an employee but they're actually um, part of the company, it, it does you know naturally change their orientation. They're more exactly, prepared, you know, they don't need yeah, they don't need to be. They can even go beyond like working hours. Um, so so yeah, I definitely understand that and. Maybe what what are some of the unique opportunities or what challenges that you have you know experienced uh, uh, building a tech startup in Africa? I know despite you know things opening up a little bit and we're seeing more investment flowing in, there's still you know unique challenges and 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 even you could even think about them as opportunities. Um, what is that experience ha- been for you specifically?
1: Um, I mean, there's a lot. Um, there's the experience of, you know, how regulators think, how um, how to navigate regulators. Then there's also funds in themselves, you know, how venture funds work. Um, right now we're seeing a situation where venture funds are having to do a lot more, having to look at other um, forms of getting liquidity in some instances, in some instances, maybe even selling secondaries, um, of the existing funds because again these funds are gotten from LPs or these monies are gotten from LPs you need to remit a certain amount back to those LPs and so it becomes a um, it becomes a a case of we need to have liquidity as fast as possible
0: Yeah. Uh, Speaking about investment, we have, you know, Egypt, South Africa, Kenya, and and your country, Nigeria, they are known as the big four. And Mm -hmm. these countries account for 73% of active startup acceleration and 75% uh, startup investment. In your opinion, what what are you guys doing right? Um, And what advice would you have for, you know, uh, a country like mine, you know, Zimbabwe, how can we, you know, also Um, get a get a piece of
1: that I mean investment goes to where or a lot of you know later stage investors go to where they feel investment has been de-risked one of the reasons why Nigeria seems to have you know quite a bit of investors in place because a lot of the early stage investors tend to de-risk investments for the later stage investors to come in you need a lot of local investment because local investment presence is what helps you scale through um, local hurdles, like maybe local regulation or um, local marketing, et cetera. Then it gets you to a point where you are now at scale level. That's where a lot of foreign investment tends to invest in. So for ecosystems, for venture ecosystems to scale, there needs to be a lot more local investment in early stage.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, I was actually speaking uh, about that with my last guest. Um, but we were speaking about in Africa in general that sometimes I think there's there's this expectation that you know someone is going to come and save us or that um because at the end of the day I think it 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 comes to what you're speaking about local investment first okay. um before we even think about venture capital investment and on a continental level we're also talking about um local um venture funds that. Should be able to also, you know, take that opportunity in in uh, in investing in startups, and then you know, there's this question about uh, Silicon Valley um, uh, and whether or not it can be replicated. You know, the first attempt I think was uh, in the 1960s, where a consortium of companies uh, invited um, uh, Frederick Terman, who was was known as the father of Silicon Valley, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, to to try and replicate that. But you know, it was a failed project, um, mostly because all these companies couldn't really collaborate with each other. Um, and 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 but so, what do you think about this sort of question? You know, because every African fund that I always talk about, I've always spoken to, especially in the early age, in the early stages, they always talk about how they want to contribute or build, you know, the African Silicon Valley. Um, mm-hmm. How should we think about this?
1: To be honest, it's going to be, I mean, Africa in itself, one of the peculiarities of Africa in itself is that we have 54 very distinct countries. If you look at all the different ecosystems, Southeast Asia isn't like that. Um, Europe isn't like that. The U.S. is 50 states that kind of had shared values and shared beliefs Mm -hmm. in Africa, just Trading across Africa alone is an, is a big issue, right? We have the AFCT, which was supposed to help with that. And uh, we're not sure yet what's, um, what the verdict is still, the, is still out on that. Um, yeah. And it's still quite expensive to do business across Africa as opposed to doing business with the rest of the world. So a lot of things from a government standpoint needs to change. We need to have government... Um, we need to have a lot of our government actually step in and be focused on you know, businesses, focused on growing businesses across regions. Um, we have Kenya, um, we have Kenya and Rwanda trying to do something similar, but it has to come from a lot of the bigger countries as well: um, Nigeria, um, South Africa. I know that Zambia and Zimbabwe are. I know that Zambia is also trying to do something as well. We also need, from Zimbabwe, Uganda, like a lot of the larger countries have to. We're not there yet. We still need, we still have a lot of things to do on that aspect from the government side. Because there's a saying that you can't, you can't out-innovate government incompetence. You just can't. Yeah,
0: exactly. So um, what do you think, uh, is the role of you know uh, good and decisive leadership in terms of changing this uh, this narrative? And,
1: uh... um, from regulation, I mean, from regulation to infrastructure to um, right now we have situations. I don't know much about other countries, but we have situations where in Nigeria they're trying to do a um, what do they call it now? Let's say you're trying to do a government um project what tends to happen is the, i don't even know if i'll call it a bidding process but what tends to happen is next thing we're hearing um some company that just started yesterday has gotten that bid meanwhile we have a lot of private companies here who could satisfy that bid startups all of that and would easily satisfy fulfill that bid we have to start having things like this. It's it's a it's a whole lot.
0: There's a new yeah. whole lot to be honest. Awesome. Um, so in closing, maybe you could also, yeah, that's that's obviously I think would have to do a part two just to unpack that that question. Yeah, awesome. yeah. There's a lot to talk about there. Um, so, um, Jude, can you maybe describe to us or tell us about your information diet in terms of um, what, where you get your information? Is it from books? Is it from blogs? What, what sort of um, consists of? What, what, what does your information diet uh, consist of?
1: I mean, I, it's, it's, it's pretty much scattered. I'm the type of person that likes to, um, what's the word called? I indulge a lot in everything. could be movies, it could be books, it could be anything. so anything that I find interesting, I tend to dabble in, and what i what tends to happen is so I'm more of a movie person because you know visuals allow me to um easily digest things in real time um but also, I read a lot of articles. I read a lot of, uh, I read a lot of articles here and there, and then I think one of the best places for information. I mean, a lot of people would argue, but for me, is Twitter. Now, um, yeah. Twitter has Twitter gives me quite a lot of content in the shortest amount of time. So yes, I digest a lot of written content, and then for um, let me say historical content I it's movies for me
0: awesome so do you think there's enough uh, representation in terms of africa when it comes to to the visual aspect of things because i i also you know um enjoy uh certain shows and and historical maybe documentaries but i tend to find you know one of the actually the inspirations for starting this podcast and and the media company that we're trying to build is to actually um start telling you know stories um from an african perspective and and stories of africans that are building uh in this case in the tech space so what what do you think we should do uh, on that front uh, are we doing enough um do you think um there's enough representation of us and our history in 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 sort of the visual aspect of um of media
1: no, nah, I I don't think there's I don't think there's anything close to being enough. And I'm going to use an example of Nigeria. I mean, I'm Nigerian. There's a lot of things we were taught in, you know, social studies in primary secondary school that like you graduate and you find out from Twitter that it was a lot of bullshit. And yeah, a major aspect of these things is because information being passed down is lost in so many ways. Um, a lot of our information wasn't written or visual; it was passed down through word of mouth. Um, things that happened in real time weren't documented, so you tend to see information, um, a lot of information that we get because it's passed down by word of mouth. I mean, there's there's something called the Chinese whispers, is a game that by the time you get, by the time it gets to the next person that information is twisted a little bit. And so you already see shifts and changes, et cetera. So for us, I think, yes, we need to do a lot more from an African perspective in documented, either written or visual. A lot of people tend to, the reason why I, I mean, I would say visual a lot more is visual gets a lot of people to consume at a much faster pace than written.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that um, and sometimes we underestimate the value that you know um, consuming Western or let let me just say non-African content molds us in the image of whoever it is that whose whose content we are consuming. Because essentially, we then if it's entrepreneurship, I grew up you know watching uh Mark Zuckerberg documentaries, uh, Bill Gates documentaries. And so forth. But yeah. it, we, we do have a lot of, you know, African uh, builders like yourself, people that are building great companies whose stories are amazing. So I think it's it's not that these stories are superior to ours. It's just that we're not telling enough of our stories, um, is, is my view. Um. So can you maybe tell us where viewers can find you online and um, how they can interact with you?
1: Uh, a lot of my online online speak or a lot of my online presence can be found on Twitter mostly. So I'd say Twitter. Um uh, my account is Big Brother B-I-G B-R-U-T-H-A underscore.
0: Okay. Awesome. Um, thank you so much, Jude, for doing this. Um I I trust that people enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for having me.